Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. It's great to see a few familiar faces. Uh, my name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. And for those of you who aren't familiar uh, with CIS, we are a public policy research organisation and we're uh, primarily committed to promoting good, sound, evidence-based public policy. Uh, we were created in 1976 by my predecessor, Greg Lindsay. Uh, he ran the show for more than 40 years before passing the torch to me about a year and a half ago. And uh, the goal of the CIS remains the same. We want to make Australia uh, a better, freer and even more prosperous place than it is today. And we do so on a wide variety of public policy issues. Uh, we've long been strong champions of productivity-enhancing economic reform. Uh, during the 80s and the 90s and 2000s, we helped lead the intellectual effort uh, to support uh, Hawke, Keating, Labor governments, uh, the Howard Costello coalition governments in deregulating the Australian economy, financial market deregulation, floating the dollar, tariff cuts, tax reform, all of those things that have contributed to our 28-year bull run. We're also very passionate about education reform and we're specifically focused on productivity, that is how we can obtain better school outcomes without putting an extra burden on taxpayers. And our most recent public policy research was just published a few weeks ago by one of our rising stars at CIS, Blaise Joseph, and it was a paper on how disadvantaged schools can become top performers. Well, this evening is a very special uh, night here for the CIS family. Um, we are doing the Sydney launch for this book. It's called Bulletproof Problem Solving. The One Skill That Changes Everything. It's published by Wiley, and I hope you've noticed that copies are available uh, for purchase at the reception area. It's co-written by Charles Conn, uh, who's based in England, so he's not here this evening, and also by Rob McLean, who many of you no doubt know as one of our nation's most distinguished uh, business figures. Rob was, uh, he had a long career with uh, McKinsey and Company, uh, where he led the Australian and New Zealand practice um, of the firm and as a senior advisor. He also happens to be a long-standing member, a board member here at CIS. Tonight, we can't think of a better person to launch this book than our next speaker. Uh, Belinda Hutchinson has been a chair and director of many prominent business institutions. Uh, these days, she is, among other things, the chancellor at the University of Sydney, and she happens to be uh, a past board member here at CIS. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Belinda Hutchinson. Thanks, Tom, and welcome everyone this evening. Well, we're here tonight, as Tom has said, to launch a book on bulletproof problem solving, which surely means the first problem we must solve is why we need a book about bulletproof problem solving. Why in the world where 90% of all data has been created in the past two years, so there's no shortage of information to help us in problem solving? Why when we have Google with an answer to every question? Why when there are 7 million mobile phone devices already in the world, so no matter where you go or who you are, you can just go have Google at your fingertips? So I thought I would look to Google to solve my immediate and pressing problem, how to write a speech about launching a book. <laughs> now, let me tell you, what you're going to hear tonight has nothing to do with what I found on Google. Otherwise, you'd be listening to a speech about launching a children's book at the Hydro Majestic Hotel in the Blue Mountains. <laughs> Clearly, none of the latest technology has eased the need for humans to get better at solving problems. So, it is a great honour to be here tonight to launch this book. I must admit, when Rob asked me to do this, I wondered how on earth I could do justice to a book written by one of the smartest people I know. I've admired Rob for many years. He's a quiet achiever with a long and illustrious career in heading up McKinsey in Australia and Asia and working with some of the world's largest companies like BHP. He and his wife, Paula, are also extraordinarily generous and committed contributors to our community. 
Some of us know about Rob's work with the Nature Conservancy, the Stella Prize, and more recently, the Ramsey Foundation. Less well-known is some of Rob and Paula's engaged philanthropy, including university scholarships for disadvantaged young people from Broken Hill, where Rob grew up. He also works with a range of universities, including my own Sydney, trying to solve some of the most difficult problems, the wicked problems of our time. I asked one of his collaborators, Professor Sally Cribbs, to tell me a bit about the work she'd done with Rob at the University of Melbourne and now at the University of Sydney, where she is co-director of our Centre for Translational Data Science. Sally told me Rob's problem-solving ability stems from his deep curiosity about the world around him, coupled with pragmatism and business acumen, attributes she says has been pivotal for researchers like her. She told me about the time when she was working on a paper on, listen to this, non-stationary spectral density estimation using mixtures of Gaussian process priors. Rob asked her to explain this in plain English. And when she did, he asked if the technique could be used to predict changes in the frequency of El Nino Southern Oscillation events. Sally told me, having come from a maths and stats background, it had never occurred to me that my work might be of practical use, but it was. Rob's further questioning also established that if researchers could forecast the frequency of the El Nino events, they could predict rainfall in Australia. And if they could do that, he continued, could they use it to forecast water storage in the Murray-Darling Basin so they could price water futures? Indeed, they could. The model could reduce uncertainty by 75% six months in advance by predicting rainfall using global climate indicators. Not only has Rob's curiosity resulted in a better understanding of Australia's climate and rainfall patterns, but it has also led to an ARC-funded PhD training program. And it has led to a number of research publications, and Sally said the dubious honour of Rob being acknowledged in the Journal of American Statistical Association. Now, Rob and one of his very gifted colleagues and friends, Charles Conn, have come together to write this extraordinary book on problem solving. Rob and Charles have come up with some simp a simple seven-step framework that can be applied to almost every problem, small or large, that we face in our lives, whether they relate to ourselves, our families, to our work, or our community commitments. Really, Rob, at this point, I must take you to task. You could have saved me and everyone in this room a lot of time and heartache if you'd just written this book a long time ago. <laughs> Instead, we've all been bumbling along trying to solve all our problems on our own. So let me tell you about this framework that they've come up with. It's very straightforward. They show us how to define the problem, disaggregate the issues, develop the hypotheses to explore it, they teach us how to prioritise what to do, how to develop a work plan, and how to decide what facts and analysis is required. And finally, they guide us in how to synthesise the findings to provide clear insights that you com can communicate in a compelling way. The book is packed full of examples of problems and how you can use the seven steps to solve them. And while it could be seen as a textbook, it's actually a fun and fascinating read. It explores a whole range of tools, including clever heuristics, analytic shortcuts, back-of-the-envelope calculations, through to game theory, re regression analysis, and machine learning. So what tactics should you use to win a game of tennis? Rob uses game theory to analyse where to place your serves to win the game. He demonstrates that making each serve appear random is the key, but makes the point that it's not just about unpredictability. You need to take advantage of your own strengths and your opponent's weaknesses. There is, of course, one assumption here, Rob, that you don't cover. That is, you have to be a good enough tennis player to accurately serve where, where you want to. <laughs> In another example, Rob talks about the analysis he did when he needed to decide whether to undergo an arthroscopy on his knee after many years of running. He came up with three clever questions, three, cle three question heuristic, assessing the level of discomfort, the condition of the knee, 
and the athleticism of the individual. The analysis made Rob's decision straightforward. He opted for physiotherapy and waiting for new medical technology to come along. <laughs> you can see this book is very practical and personal, but it isn't a lightweight self-help book. It's a serious book that will help people solve serious problems. And as we all know, there are plenty of those in the world today. The future of work, for instance, is a very real challenge. I'm on a panel for the Australian Public Sector Review, which is being led by David Thodey. And it was commissioned by the Australian government to review the service to ensure it's fit for purpose in the decades to come. What is clear from this review is that the work and career paths are fundamentally changing. Data automation, robotics, artificial intelligence present compelling opportunities to deliver better services and to boost productivity. It is also clear that jobs relying on physical and manual skills and basic cognitive skills are being replaced by these emerging technologies. Some recent examples have suggested that up to 40% of jobs, jobs will be impacted. This shows that careful review and analysis is required to work out what career will provide financial security into the future. Rob and Charles provide a great case study on how to choose a career today. It includes data about the current labour market, economic projections for key fields of work and the requirements to assess your own strengths, interests and risk tolerance. Finally, the case study includes a series of action paths to use. In summary, there are three broad directions. A big bet, which is an entrepreneurial path if you have high ability, high interest, high risk tolerance and high economic opportunity. A no regrets educational path where you gain a base, a base of education or you can hedge your bets across two fields by working and continuing your education. The book gets even more interesting when it explores big problems like at the obesity epidemic. This work is covered by McKinsey through its Global Institute. Sadly, obesity is now a very well entrenched wicked problem. Once again, Rob, supporting others, and in this case, the University of Sydney academics, who are researching obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease through our Charles Perkins Centre, and he's doing a wonderful job just being there, listening to them. He's been involved in the work of the Centre's academic director, Professor Steve Simpson, and Professor, Professors Louise Barr and Sally Cripps, who's here tonight, who I mentioned earlier. Where is Sally? Sally. In any case, they have been doing some really interesting work on new methods for designing clinical trials. In the book, Rob and Charles describe the whole range of tools that are being used, including new methods in Bayesian modelling. These methods can be used in clinical trials, allowing researchers, rather than testing a single drug or intervention, to test multiple interacting factors at once. It will help them to stratify subjects according to information they already know about them and to change the recruitment strategy throughout the trial as they learn more along the way. This approach will revolutionise the way researchers collect the data needed to test health interventions. In these complex times, we are confronted by a whole range of wicked problems. Terrorism, trade wars, climate change, inequality, to name just a few and obviously a lot of insights are required. That's why this book is so important. It provides a roadmap for developing rigorous and evidence-based solutions to deeply challenging problems. I congratulate Rob and Charles on a fantastic book, and I recommend you all buy a copy and read it over Easter. It's great reading. <laughs> Thanks. Belinda, thank you. And now I'd like to call on our guest speaker, the author of The Bulletproof Problem Solving, the one skill that changes everything. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rob McLean. Thanks, Tom. Is that working? Uh, thanks, Belinda, for an extraordinary summary of uh, what we're up to. I don't think we kind of thought that we were doing what you described so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'd like to thank you all for, for coming, uh, my family, my friends and CIS uh, supporters. I can feel the problem-solving talent in this room. <laughs> I also want to thank Angus Dawson, who is here somewhere, Angus. Um, Angus has uh, just taken on the role of managing partner of uh, McKinsey. And um, although I've been uh, out of McKinsey for 20 plus years, I've had wonderful support um, in launching the book with in Melbourne last, uh, last week and uh, previously in Sydney and coming up in Brisbane. And, um, and that's greatly appreciated. I want to thank a number of, uh, of people who helped me with the book and um, Belinda has already flagged, uh, flagged that and um, I think if you can sort of put your hand up or something just so people can see who we're referring to. And these are my Oscars um, that relate to, to the book. First up is my daughter Virginia Grant, a former editor of Random House, uh, who edited the book, Ginny. Thank you indeed. Then I want to thank uh, my wife Paula, uh, who also was a former editor. Put that hand higher. <laughs> <laughs> Paula spent a month, sorry, a summer uh, at Oxford uh, while we uh, sketched out and, um, and figured out what the book would be and wrote a prospectus and we had... Um, we lived at Rhodes House, um, uh, which was a fantastic place to be, and we worked in the boardroom, turned it into a McKinsey-type team room. Um, we had five Rhodes Scholars as our uh, research assistants, um, and Charles and I would go off to artificial intelligence and machine learning lectures and call interesting people and ask them for their perspectives on different things. And we had a wonderful time, um, and Paula sat in the team room and worked with us and and laid out the conditions uh, for how we wrote the book. And she said um, three things. You've got to cut the jargon, always hard, uh, coming from McKinsey. We had to write clean sentences and we had to tell stories. And that's, that's what we've tried to follow in, um, um, in the book. But it wasn't just that summer. You know, it's been about an 18-month process and Paula's been, been there and poured over every revision um, of the book. Um, I also want to go back a while and thank the great McKinsey editor, Janet Donald. Is Janet? Hi, Janet. <laughs> Janet uh, taught me so much um, as a young consultant who didn't know which way was up. Um, but most of all, Janet taught me how to, um, uh, how to think clearly and how to write well. And, um, and that's a gift uh, that is just so terribly important. I want to thank Margie Seal, who uh, the former editor of Penguin Random House, who uh, is in New Zealand at the moment. But Margie guided us uh, through the process of the book and um, and said to us, "You don't need a literary agent," and we didn't, you know. And then we we got to the point of having to choose a couple of offers, and she helped us through that path of who we would choose. And in the end, as Tom pointed out, it was Wiley. Now. Another person who helped us enormously was uh, Liana Downey. Is Liana here? No? Uh, Liana wrote a wonderful book called Mission Control uh, for running non-for-profits. But what Liana did in that book was she effectively used the seven steps process and she showed how you could tackle an issue like gun control in America using the process. And that really helped and gave us confidence to say that this process that Charles and I had largely worked with on business problems, you know, could have applicability in, um, in a range of social problems. And then when it came to a number of the, um, the stories and cases um, in the book, uh, people who helped um, enormously, I'll just start with some of the cases. One of the cases um, is should we go to court? And anybody in business knows that the answer is always no. Um, <laughs> Well, the, the answer in the book is yes, and it's the story of the, the, the fabulous Wi-Fi story of the case that CSIRO ran against the tech giants in the US, and in the end, I think I can be, get the right answer here from either Medad or Nigel, 500 million, uh, effectively got court, court claims of more than 500 million for the Australian, uh, for the Australian people through, through that court action. Merdad and Nigel were uh, the active players in convincing the board to take this action on and I just had Nigel 
presenting to an MBA class at, uh, at AGSM and had the students on his seat, on the edge of their seat as he talked through being in the Eastern District Court of Texas uh, with a judge who was telling him that he had to settle with Intel by, by noon tomorrow or the case was going to be thrown out. And it was high drama that went through that case. But we've, through the, the help of public sources and, uh, and the, the efforts of, of Merdad, we've been able to tell this story in the book. One of the other great stories in the book is shark spotting drones and the use of machine learning. Kevin Weldon was going to be here tonight who uh, has pioneered that but unfortunately can't make it. We have a case using Bayesian statistics which is the tragic case of the space shuttle disaster and that is, is I, I got enormous help from Professor Sally Cripps to be able to tell that story and Sally had to take, it through, take me through it about six times before I got it. But it's it's compelling and um, and really shows the, the the power of doing the right analysis on a problem. the The issue of when to make big bets and uh, Belinda touched on that a moment ago. Chris Bradley helped us significantly with the content of his book, Beyond the Hockey Stick. And I was pleased to see today that on Amazon, when you uh, when you see bulletproof problem solving, and it says people also bought Beyond the Hockey Stick. So we've become a, a, a companion uh, group of kinds uh, there. Now, the last example I wanted to mention was uh, the example that Belinda has already talked about, which is where to serve in tennis. And I have John Ireland at Royal Sydney to thank for that help. But I am, I am concerned about the fact that my algorithm is now revealed. Um, and there are people in this room who could take advantage of it. Um, first of all, my son, Tim. Secondly, John Fairfax. Where's John? <laughs> then there's John Trowbridge. Where's John? There we go. Warwick Johnson. Hand goes up. Ron Osborne. Michael Trail. Louise Walsh. I'm even, I'm even tempted to have a, an Australian version that doesn't have the case in it. So I had enormous help, as you can see, from, uh, from a lot of people, and that just covers the Australian cases. There are 30 cases in all in the book. I just want to finish by, by mentioning the uh, – we got our first review, which is very positive and in many ways captures the essence of, um, of the book in a way that I don't think we quite realised, a little bit like the way Belinda described what we're up to. In this review, uh, term, which is in a – magazine called um, Ideas for Leaders, it says the core idea. The authors quote Herb Simon, the economics Nobel laureate from Carnegie Mellon, who specialised in decision making. And the quote we used was, solving a problem simply means representing it so as to make the solution transparent. And this, at its heart, is what the book is about and the seven steps. Most of the problems we are faced with today are not ones of finding a new formula to cure a disease, but for navigating our way to make a sensible decision. Executing the solution is another set of challenges, but often not as complex. The difficult part of solving problems is not identifying the what of the problem, but the why. At its simplest and most linear, if water is not running from your tap, that is the what of the problem. But the solution resides in why it is not flowing. Maybe the tap itself is faulty. Maybe the, the pipe to the tap has burst. Maybe there's water, no water flowing into the pipe. Without making the problem transparent, the solution cannot be found. Now, we didn't say it nearly as well. The problems this book concerns itself with are more complex and systematic, but no less personal often. Should I invest in solar panels? Where should I live? What career should I choose? They apply to organisational problems too. Pricing, airport capacity, bus routing, market share loss, and to societal issues as well, HIV in India, reducing overfishing, and can obesity be reduced? That's what I wanted to uh, share with you. It's, it's been a, um, a great journey. I'm only disappointed my co-author, Charles, can't be uh, with us. He's going to do a similar launch in Oxford in a little while. But thank you all for joining us. a few questions to, um, to Rob and, and indeed Belinda 
And I thought I'd start by just referring to that uh, review. I think it's in the business uh, book review, Rob, that you mentioned before the first review of your book. And it, so, it says that Bulletproof has uh, grown out of um, a passion for problem solving and the realisation that the application goes well beyond uh, business problem solving. It raises the question, what prompted you to write this book, Rob? I think there's a, a, a longer term, something was gnawing at me and then there's a shorter term version of it. But I think when I uh, was dean at AGSM and Sally was on the, the faculty at that time, I felt that there was something missing in the, the curriculum and that was problem solving. Mm. But it, it was one of those things I wasn't quite sure what to do about it. I now, uh, having taught an intensive two-day program to the incoming MBA class, I think it's, it just, it's something we, we would like every MBA school uh, to adopt. We've actually sent our book to the deans of the top 100 business schools in the world mm -hmm. and told them about it and we would like to see it. Um, so the book is primarily aimed at uh, master's students in business? Not quite. Uh, there's another market that people like Angus and Michael Rennie and others would know McKinsey got one million job applications last year. Is that a fact? Um, Crocky. And we, if, if, if half that number decided to read our book. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to the races. <laughs> and what else prompted you to write the book? Then the, the, the more immediate thing was I, I was at a, a, a Nature Conservancy uh, trustee meeting in Washington and I was lis listening to this wonderful CEO, Jim Morgan, who uh, was a Silicon Valley pioneer and ran a company called Applied Materials. And Jim uh, was talking on the panel about the book that he'd written. And I had that long flight home from Washington and uh, <laughs> I just started thinking to myself, what would I write a book about? And then I thought, I've had a problem-solving life. Mm. S started doing econometrics and decision theory at university and uh, then after the MBA, the worked, I worked at the RAND Corporation prior to McKinsey. And then I find so much of the work that you, uh, Belinda was talking about that I do in philanthropy mm. has deep problem-solving as well. Quick time out. Lulu will deal with your mic issue right now. The Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum, um, that's held, uh, I think it's every January of every year, uh, they talk a lot about the complex uh, business uh, uh, problem solving and they say that's the key skill required uh, of organisations in the 21st century, closely followed by critical thinking and creativity. However, your line is that none of these are actually taught either at high school and universities. How's it got to that stage? I don't think I'm the best person to answer that, but it's, <laughs> it's true. And I know a couple of years ago, Belinda was on a panel uh, together with Andreas Schleicher from the OECD, and uh, and he was echoing uh, that point. And I think it's become more and more of an issue in colleges as well. Mm. But you know, it's just not happening. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to take yeah. over from there because um, it is actually a big issue, and it was one of the things at the University of Sydney when we went to look at our undergraduate curriculum, and we went and surveyed employers, and what did they want? They wanted students who actually understood how to solve problems. That was the fundamental thing. They wanted students who could critically think, could analyse deeply, all of those things. So we actually have, over the past three years, totally overhauled our undergraduate curriculum and really made it much more around problem solving. So one of the, the key new parts of the curriculum is what we call our industry community partnership units. And what we do there is we take students from cross-disciplinary areas, so from business, from law, from medicine, from you know, health, from whatever, and we put them together into teams engineering. And we get companies or community organisations to put to us key problems that they want solutions to. And the students work together with their academic leads over a semester to solve or come up with ideas about how to solve the problem. And then they present it to the company. So we've actually been totally overwhelmed with the response from employers to have that opportunity work with us. So in the first six months, which was last year, end of last year, we had 30 pilots 
and we were absolutely overwhelmed with the students who wanted to do it and students who then went to want, wanted to go on and do multiple <laughs> what we call ICPUs. And it's been really fantastic because I think the, the companies get to see the students, they get to actually have a problem solved. Some of the, mm. pro some of the problem solving is actually really impressive. And our students get to get together working cross-disciplinary teams and really focus on their problem-solving skills in a team environment. Mm. So I think that's just a great example of what we've done um, in terms of really focusing on problem-solving. I guess the other thing we've done is we've said, we want all of our students to have a global experience, to have global engagement, because for them to go overseas and see other universities, see other countries, and actually be able to to do that on their own, we think is a really great example in problem solving. Mm -hmm. So we've now got to 35% of our students have an, have an international experience at the undergraduate level and we expect to be at 50% by 2021 and then go north from there. So I think there's a whole bunch of things that we're trying to do to embed into our curriculum that opportunity for our students to really focus on their problem solving skills. Yeah, and we should stress that um, times have changed. I mean, um, the Sydney University for many years focused primarily on micro and macroeconomics yeah. and perhaps political economy. But yeah. it's really only the last 10 or so years that, that the business schools have focused a lot now on problem solving. Yeah. And we should stress that Belinda has been the Chancellor of the University of Sydney for how many years now? Now five years. Now five actually, years, yeah. right. Mm. And just disclaimer, I was a student and I taught there with... Uh, a lot of pleasure as well. So it's great to have you on that. Was very one of point. the best lecturers. They all <laughs> raved about him. <laughs> now, Belinda, you and your family foundation um, support a lot of education innovation. Do you see a role for better problem solving in education generally? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, one of the reasons we focus on education is obviously one of the key ways people can overcome disadvantage at an individual, family, community level is is actually to get get children a proper education. And I guess one of the things we've therefore done in terms of our family foundation is choose that as one of the key areas of focus. So it's early childhood disadvantage, educational disadvantage, and then international development. But educational disadvantage we think is key, but you look at the problem and you say, we're spending more and more money, tens of billions of dollars more in this country and yet we don't seem to be turning the dial on NAPLAN. We mm. don't seem to be doing better than China or Singapore, which have much bigger class sizes, but seem to get better results. So one of the things we've tried to look at is how do we really put our programs that we invest in towards better quality of teaching, which is one of the things and one of the reasons why we actually supported the program that Jennifer Buckingham had here. Long time uh, head of our education uh, school. Which is focused on phonetics and phonics mm -hmm. and that teaching in primary school. Because we could see she came to us with a fact-based... First of all, she came up with a hypothesis about phonetics. She then went out and did some really, really deep research looking at the UK, came back and demonstrated to us that it really worked. We'd also seen it with our children... Our children, four of our, three, we have four children, and three of them had gone to a school where they taught phonetics in terms of learning to read. Those kids really went ahead in terms of being, a, and being able to read really quickly and really well. Our other child went to a school which didn't use phonetics and was much, much slower as a reader until he really got the love of reading. So we'd seen it really work in our own children, but Jennifer showed us the facts and she showed us the teaching guidelines that she would be using and the guidance programs she would be using. So we absolutely mm. felt that that was something where we would actually get real results from the program. We're similarly supporting um, a program with Social Ventures Australia at the moment, which again is focused on practice guidelines for numeracy and literacy skills in children in primary, in primary school. And they're doing it on a trial basis um, and they'll be coming back to us with evidence that it actually works before they roll it out more widely. So for us... That's the sort of problem solving that SVA is doing as they roll these, test these programs in communities, in schools, before they look to roll it out in a wider sense. So it's yeah, and a reminder that philanthropy can do so much to help promote sound public policy. Uh, Rob, back to you. I mean, you've obviously had a very distinguished business career and you have a serious interest in philanthropy. Uh, why do you feel these approaches derived from business are applicable to uh, non-profits and government? I think the 
The simple answer is um, is, is what works mm. and what provides insight. In the you know, as I've a couple of years ago, when we started on the book, I didn't have any confidence at all that that we could bring any insight to a topic like obesity. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it, it genuinely is a wicked problem. Mm. But as we started to, we spent some time on it at. Um, at Oxford and, um, you know, then started to understand country differences between, say, the United States and, and Japan. And then we looked at things like 68 cities in the US, extraordinary differences in the level of obesity. Mm. What surprised us was that, and we've got examples of a regression analysis where we had this young PhD student of machine learning and uh, by looking at income, education and walkability of a city, that, that explained 82% of the variance in obesity levels. Yeah. And nobody, talk, nobody talks about those factors, you know, in, in obesity. And um, my son-in-law, David Grant, who's, who's with us tonight, he provided some really interesting analysis to show that, you know, more walkable cities uh, have higher, you know, rental, uh, rental prices mm-hmm. that actually can allow you to fund uh, the change to a more walkable city. And now you know, with uh, the likes of Louise Bauer that um, uh, Belinda mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we're finding that you can actually pick apart a really complex problem like obesity. So we're, we've got a number of conversations going about gestational weight gain in early pregnancy, which is an issue, of course, for mothers and weight gain of the, of, of the child in the first couple of years. So you don't have to deal with you know, there's very complex set of issues around uh, fast food and sugar taxes. And I mean, mm-hmm. you can actually deal with some of this without having to deal, you know, with, uh, with the whole thing. And picking apart um, issues is the way that we, uh, we think about it. And that's, a, I think, a good example, which, by the way, the McKinsey Global Institute laid out the framework uh, for how you tackle obesity in the UK. And it's just, it's a fabulous piece of work. But, of course, there are some critics to say, well, what, why should people who aren't doctors, you know, be yeah. having a point of view about, uh, about this issue? And then similarly with uh, the example we give in overfishing in, um, uh, in California, this was a case where they, they couldn't come to uh, uh, grips with a diminishing resource. Fishermen were going out of business. And uh, the Nature Conservancy, where I'm a, a trustee, got all the fishermen together um, and bought 51% of the quotas and then handed them back to the fishermen on the basis that they do it on a sustainable catch. So they actually brought a market mechanism to bear, you know, to solve what, you know, is regarded as a, by a lot of researchers, as a problem of the commons Mm. and one that's insoluble. Although not everyone agrees with you, about a year ago there was a book published called uh, Winner's take all the intellectual charade of uh, changing the world. Uh, it was published uh, by a New York Times reporter and it was reviewed very sympathi- sympathetically by the Guardian newspaper, which might give you a sense of where it's coming from. <laughs> but it says it's highly critical of elites. This is the book and, the, and what the author calls their protocols, which includes how firms like McKinsey solve problems by reducing them down to the unimportant and leave communities out of decisions. How would you respond to that? It's like we're on Q&A. Right? <laughs> well, I do have another job at the ABC. <laughs> um, I'm reading the, uh, the book as well. I, I know, and, uh, know the author's father, who was also a McKinsey uh, senior partner. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and the author, I think, Spent five minutes at McKinsey as well. Right, um, right. This is the author um, from the New York Times. Yeah. Yep. The, there's, having just spent a week in the US uh, talking to a, a, a range of uh, very large philanthropic in, uh, institutions, there's a strong backlash at the moment about, you know, and Merdad would be well aware about, of that, of, um, of philanthropists indulging themselves with their whims and, and wishes and, um, and having board structures the, that perpetuate, you know, their own, you know, preferences. 
We have an example in the book of uh, how HIV was stopped in India when the Gates Foundation came in, mm. uh, when HIV was expected to run to 20 million. And um, one of our former colleagues, Ashok Alexander, left McKinsey to join the Gates Foundation and create what's called the Avahan Project. And they diagnosed the situation. They did a very creative approach where Ashok um, spent several years with these downtrodden Indian female sex workers. And then out of that came the insight to create what they called the Avahan Solution, which alerted communities, lawyers and journalists to uh, issues of uh, violence related to uh, the, the perpetrators. They then rolled this solution out to 600 towns and villages in India in two years. And the Lancet estimated that they saved 600,000 lives. Wow. And um, Bill Gates wrote a story to Warren Buffett and said, I thought you might just like to know what's been going on, how we've been spending your money. So I, I see examples like that yeah. that work. Yes. And I come back to Belinda's point, which is sort of links us here tonight. Basically what we're saying is uh, employ the scientific method of establishing hypotheses, putting a logic structure together, collect the evidence, uh, then synthesise it, and then figure out a course of action. Mm. Um, so if you want this notion of, of elites, well, if, if that's what elites do, mm. um, you know, I, I stand guilty, but I don't think there's a better path. Yeah. We'll take questions very soon, but we'll just finish uh, the formal proceedings here with Belinda. And obviously, Belinda, you're a very experienced director in business and not-for-profits. A question, do you agree there's an opportunity to improve uh, problem-solving capability of our corporate sector and that it's worth doing? Absolutely. Um, there's no doubt. I mean, we've had a lot of problems in the last little while. Let's <laughs> think of the Hay and Royal Commission. Exactly. Yeah. But um, let me give you a, a positive example. Um, I'm on the Qantas board and we have obviously a very, very serious safety, security environment committee. And the thing that really interested me when I read the book was how Qantas takes exactly Rob's and Charles's recommended approach to problem solving when it comes to a safety issue. So if we have an issue with an aircraft, um, an engine problem or brake problem, whatever it might be, we will take exactly what Rob says. We will have what's called a stop press. We'll have the issue brought to us immediately. There'll be an hypothesis about what the problem is, what's caused the problem. Then there'll be serious, deep analysis into what the root causes of it was. What are all the issues involved? So they'll be synthesising it, they'll be looking at every angle. And then over the next three, six months, depending on the complexity of the problem, that will come back to us as a committee with the analysis and then the insights that they've learnt and then what we're going to do about fixing it. And it's absolutely a model of your book. And it was so interesting when I read it. I thought that's what every company should do when they're analysing a problem. They should absolutely use the model because it's, it's, it's just the way to do it. And you get to a great outcome. Yeah. Yeah, Rob, do you want to respond to that before we take questions? I just want to... Uh, I think that's a magnificent example, but um, just seeing Michael Rennie in the room, Michael has written a book that uh, called Leadership at Scale and he has a finding in that book that companies in the, <clears throat> in the top quartile of problem solving earn 3.5 3 times the total return to shareholders of companies in the bottom um, quartile. Wow. So, uh, and, and we, that finding came out <clears throat> after we'd gone to the publisher but I, I wrote a piece just the other day for a magazine called CEO World that, that's called Why Problem Solving is a CEO Issue. And I, I framed it around this finding about the total return to shareholders and the earlier finding that was mentioned of the, the World Economic Forum that complex problem solving is regarded as the, um, the highest issue in 2020 in terms of what employers are seeking. So mm. there's a lot of convergence, uh, I think, that's saying this, this is a real issue for companies. 
and it's a real issue for, for people who, who want to get a job, uh, want to get advanced, um, and for the, the corporations that they're in. Right. Good to see Michael Rennie here. He's also not only been a long time affiliated with uh, McKinsey, but also has been a board member here at CIS for a while, Deputy Chair, and good to see a few other board members here too. I think uh, Melinda Conrad is here and our former chairman. Hey, Melinda. And Peter Mason, great to see you. Uh, okay, now Q&A, and our first question comes from Greg. Hello, Rob. Hello, Rob. Uh, thank you for uh, coming here tonight. And uh, like I said, I bought the book uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, it, it sounds spectacular. We have tennis, we have sharks, we have uh, <laughs> stocks, we have schools, we have everything. But I think the major question that a lot of people are thinking tonight is, how does this book deal with dating and relationships? <laughs> 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 he is a millennial. <laughs> um, Greg, you heard the um, you heard the way Belinda described the um, what career should I take? You can actually substitute uh, your dating thing. You can take you can take big bets. You can take some no regret moves, <laughs> and you can hedge. <laughs> now for a more serious question. Yes, ma'am. And just wait for the microphone if you just. That was a serious question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that one first. Yep. Hi. In terms of um, skills-based development, I was one of the people who ran a pilot at Sydney uh, too, by the oh. way, in visual learning. Um, I've heard you mention quite a few times things such as insight, hindsight, foresight. These are actually all visual skills. And we spoke about phonetics and we spoke about um, numeracy and literacy. I was just wondering, because I work in um, visual skills and I've done it for a long time, I was just wondering why we don't take visual skills... Um, you know, importantly, given that they are directly related to imagination and clearly imagination is absolutely vital for um, complex problem solving and critical thinking. I think that's you. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> I think the answer, uh, part of my answer would be in the book we have a hundred diagrams or what we were trained to call in McKinsey exhibits. And um, it really follows the approach of that I described with Herb Simon, the Nobel laureate, where we, we use visualisation and this approach of, of drawing, uh, drawing logic trees, drawing out root causes, drawing out theories of change, the way systems work. That, that to us is, is really essential and it, it's, it's just such a, a stock in trade of the way that Charles and I learnt uh, to do problem solving and almost every time you know, we were sharing our perspectives on things, it would be with a diagram, a tree, a visualisation of what it was we were dealing with. I don't think I have anything more to add except for the fact that it, the book really does stress visualisation and using those sort of tools. And, and I totally agree. I mean, you know, when you sketch out a problem, it's absolutely the way you do it, whether you put it in a circle and you have your... your your circles offered exactly what you've been doing there. I mean, there's just so many examples in the book about how you can actually look at a problem from various perspectives. It's terrific. Yes, sir. I just wait for the mic, mate. Thanks, Max. Hi. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I'd be curious uh, to hear your take on the challenges of irrationality, say, in a traditional game theory model where I suppose the, the core framework is you assume that they have self-interest, there's certain behaviours they will engage in. What about the factors of um, unpredictability, possibly self-destructiveness or mutual destructiveness, intractable groupthink, emotionality? How do we face those challenges when facing that model? I think with the first half of, um, of your question, we, we thought we would go there uh, to look at issues like terrorism and and we and we chickened out we we just didn't feel confident that we you know could bring enough or the uh, that was distinctive to do that we do feel and we we spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about things like groupthink we talk a lot about biases to decision making and it's interesting uh, there was a 
piece in the McKinsey Quarterly a little while back that said that when directors were polled about their biggest concern, it's, it's the, and they said it's the biases that come um, with the board papers and so forth that they get. And we, we enumerate a number of these biases, you know, such as confirmation bias and uh, a whole raft of, of them that bedevil decision-making, and we really try to set up a lot of processes in teams where you actually have challenge, where you demand expertise. We use a, an expression that uh, we, we bring forward, an expression we used to use at McKinsey a lot, which was team members having an obligation to dissent. Now, some cultures, and like Japan, that's very, very difficult you know, to put into, uh, into practice. But the idea that the, the newest member of the team can have a point of view that's just as valid as the team leader that's the kind of thing that we say makes you know for mm. uh, for good good problem solving so some of the issues we we didn't touch but some of the issues yes we have and it's an interesting issue because um uh, one of the most famous history books in the united states in recent times was published by the historian doris kearns goodwin it's called team of rivals and it's talking about how in the lincoln cabinet there are a lot of schools of thought within the administration about how to approach certain policy issues, most notably how to deal with the Civil War. But when you look at, say, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in the 60s, or even the Bush Jr. administration in the early 2000s, there wasn't much debate in the Cabinet. And uh, one could argue uh, uh, when everyone agreed with each other, it led to the disasters of Vietnam and, and, and Iraq. So that whole idea of having a dissent and different views and bouncing ideas off each other is so important in, in all walks of life. We've got time for at least one more question. Is anyone prepared to ask another question? Yes, sir, and just wait for the mic, mate. So uh, we know each other, but in my main job as New South Wales scientist, one of the things I have to do is provide evidence-based decision-making to all the ministers here. And uh, the two hardest problems are explaining uncertainty, that things are not certain, uh, and I just wondered how you would go about addressing that. And the other thing is that often evidence isn't enough. So I can explain that a, uh, a pollution, you know, a tower for a, 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 a t uh, you know, a traffic tunnel will not, you know, will not produce the pollution that people think. And yet all the evidence says that, but the stakeholders don't believe it. Uh, and that would be true with dead fish, with bottled water, with a whole range of things. And so this people element, it seems to be very crucial to making positive decisions these days. And I just wondered how you would address that or do you address it in the book? Mm -hmm. I always expect a tough one from you, Hugh. <laughs> um, but this, uh, the, and spending the time that I uh, that I have with with Sally, the the idea of being able to express things in probabilities, Sally uses this expression, "man, the unintuitive statistician," <laughs> and and we do um, we do struggle uh, quite a bit, you know, with thinking in, in probabilities and, and that's been shown experimentally as you know that we that we have difficulty with it. I had a situation in a, a venture that I'm in recently with a couple of mathematicians and and they laid out a probability distribution of us um, achieving uh, budget next year and it was just like no we want a number. Um, so you, we do know there's uncertainty but there's just something that we sort of fight a little bit about you know wanting uh, wanting more precision than knowing that it's, uh, you know, a 65% or 67% chance of something, something happening. But we do argue, we make the case quite strongly that you have to think in terms of probability distributions. You know, you have to think about, and I guess some um, people have felt that it's more that using frequencies is a better way than using probabilities. But whether which, which of the two, um, you have to go there and, um, and we encourage that very strongly. And I think the book also is really good at saying the final stage of the problem solving part is absolutely the mo you know one of the most important because you you might have your insights you might have your answers but unless you can put together a compelling case and argue a compelling case that whoever has asked you to solve the problem will take on and believe you ain't got a solution so I think you make that point really really well and that one example that comes to mind for me is the Pacific salmon case where 
you know, quite frankly, one of the solutions would be Indigenous fishing should be reduced. But that was taken off the table because that just wouldn't be acceptable. Indigenous fishermen needed to have the right to fish. So that, 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 so that solution to that problem was just like not even canvassed. But the other problems, the problems that they felt, the, the other solutions that they felt were going to be acceptable by mainstream and by regulators and by government and by community were put on the table. I thought that was a really good example of, you know, sometimes you know you're just not going to win, but you have to have a compelling argument. Any more questions, finally? Yes, ma'am. And just wait for the mic. Yeah. Just uh, three seconds. <coughs> Hi, I'm the person that was mentioned as working with Rob. Oh. In uh, archaeological times. <laughs> and there's a couple of comments that I would like to make that people might find quite useful. One is that um, people like Rob, because I've worked with thousands of people over a very long life um, to help them with problem solving, and taking up your point about people, Rob is a person who is completely open to whatever is presented. Mm. Now, you think that's normal, Rob, <laughs> but it isn't. And so your openness, because I work with thousands of people, I would say only 1% of people by personality mm. <clears throat> have the level of curiosity where they're completely open mm. to any comments whatsoever and frankly, you're one of them. Um, and I've got have no doubt after you know not that's a long time ago since we worked, but seeing what you've achieved um, for the country, for everybody. So what I'm saying is that with applying problem solving, um, it is a very important part is the receptivity of people to new ideas. Mm and the strategies that go with problem solving to help them understand. And I've often said to people, like when I work with McKinsey, I've often said, well, I work with McKinsey, you know, I might be given the task, as Rob will remember, over a week to craft a very short letter to the board that was the synthesis of a strategy. But in those days, there was the time to do it. I don't know whether there is now. But that was taking into account all the board members, what their, what their positions might be on this news and then how to craft it so that they would be open to the actual findings mm. and the strategy. So... As I say, Rob was an incredible person to work with and if I could tell one, one short story, which if you hear it in Sydney, you'll know where it comes from because I've told it to so many people. Because, of course, at McKinsey you were encouraged to give your opinions and so I have many, I'm a person with a lot of opinions <laughs> and I remember one day I was rabbiting on about something or other and finally Rob said, Janet, it's interesting but it's not helpful. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I really do want to be helpful. <laughs> and the other thing with Rob would be, you know, we'd have all these thousands of exhibits and trying to work out what on earth this thing was about. And Rob would say, well, um, what are the facts? <laughs> and that was another thing that I've taken with me. Thank you. Well, Janet, uh, I was going to draft some uh, vote of thanks remarks, but I think you've stolen my thunder. I couldn't possibly say it any better. I was going to simply say something that really reaffirms what you said so eloquently, and that is we do live in very polarising times, you know, not just in Washington and Westminster and many parts of Europe, but even here in Australia where you have this trench warfare in Canberra, but it's not just Canberra, it's on social media and in many of our media debates. And we all too often don't want to listen to the other point of view. And 
Many of you may have heard me say this, but one of our intellectual heroes here at CIS is the great British 19th century liberal intellectual, John Stuart Mill. And he famously said that he who knows only his own argument knows little of that. For only when you've understood the strengths of your opponent's arguments do you know your own side's weaknesses. And that's, that's really a rule of debate, and I think you've said that very well about um, Rob. We, we do live in polarising times, and I think CIS tries to speak above and beyond that toxic polarisation that all too often characterises the public debates. And that's why it's so important that we uh, talk very soberly about problem solving and trying to find evidence-based public policy, which is really what CIS is about. And can you join me in, in thanking not just Rob, but also Belinda for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.